Welcome to Pandemics in the Liberal Arts, a podcast from the faculty of Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. My name is Chris Gerritz, professor of history at Bethel. Our guest today on Pandemics in the Liberal Arts is Dr. Nathan Gossett from the Bethel Department of Math and Computer Science. As soon as we thought about what are some disciplines whose importance is being revealed right now by COVID-19, uh, math came up pretty quickly, and I think we obviously all are learning the value of computers right now. Um, but uh, I mean, is it unusual to have math and computer science put together in department, Nathan, or is this pretty par for the course for an institution uh, of Bethel size? Uh, nowadays, it's a lot more common to see math and computer science in two separate departments. Uh, historically, uh, computer science kind of came out of math. It was uh, out of maybe an applied math area. Um, so at Bethel, we've decided that, you know, there's so much overlap. And in fact, we have professors who are able to teach both math and computer science courses. So we've kept it as a joint department. Uh, and we, we've been able to uh, get a lot of good synergy out of having the two of them together like that. Sure. And you're currently chairing the department too, is that right? Yes. One question we've been asking, especially once we moved past history, philosophy, the humanities, last week we got into behavioral sciences with psychology. Now as we talk about math and maybe computer science, you know, I think often we make the mistake of hearing liberal arts and we just think humanities, but the sciences and certainly math are, are historically very much a part of the liberal arts. Yeah, right? so I mean, I, I'm maybe not a super great expert in the history of the liberal arts, but uh, my understanding of a liberal arts education has always been kind of uh, if you want to call yourself an educated person, here's the subjects that you should be able to be familiar with. Um, and so even though I'm not a historian, I need to have some basic understanding of history. Even though I'm you know, not uh, someone who's a, a literature expert, I need to be well read enough uh, to be able to have those sorts of conversations. You know, I'm not a philosopher, but I should be familiar with trolley problems and to be able to navigate those sorts of, of issues. Uh, so. Um, yeah, math is one of those areas where even if you're not a mathematician, even if you're not someone who's doing this in your day-to-day -day job, having some basic foundation in mathematical thinking and mathematical understanding is going to make you better able to navigate the world around you. And if we didn't know that before, I, I think that's becoming very evident in the midst of a pandemic, right? I, I'm trying to think of a previous time in my life when math has been quite so prominent in public. I mean, we hardly can look away. To, I mean, we're seeing numbers everywhere. We're seeing graphs everywhere. And so even though right now you're not teaching math courses, although you've taught them in the past, um, you know, what are some concepts that maybe your students are seeing that are very familiar as they watch reporting and commentary about the COVID pandemic? What, what are some mathematical concepts that we should be attentive to right now? Well, so um, kind of the real obvious one is probably exponential growth. Um, you know, usually we kind of struggle a little bit to try and come up with interesting examples of exponential growth that aren't uh, interest rates on money. Um, but business students are, of course, uh, most interested in that. But it's uh, a lot of uh, the stuff that we're seeing is talking about exponential growth. And uh, some of it is that that's uh, not necessarily the go-to growth model that a lot of people have where you need to be thinking about doubling time. Um, and just the fact that it, the most, if you're experiencing exponential growth, the growth that just happened today is massively larger than the growth that was happening even maybe like a week ago. Um, and so it's hard for us to adjust to that changing scale when we're in the middle of it like that. 
Sure. What what makes this so hard? I mean, one thing I want to talk about later is numeracy and innumeracy, which is I think kind of the mathematical equivalent of literacy and illiteracy. Why is it so hard for people to understand exponential growth? Or maybe it's even just like understanding big numbers once you get into the kind of scale of yeah, so, cases um, and deaths. Some of it is now. we uh, as humans probably uh, if it, you know, if we had a hundred new cases last week we kind of are expecting that, well, it'll be 100 new cases again this week, instead of saying, well, it's not that it's growing by 100 every week, it's that it's twice as many as the week before. Um, and so it's just, there's not a whole lot of things that uh, people necessarily encounter in their day-to-day -day lives that are growing like that. Uh, most of the things that we're encountering are experiencing something a little closer to linear growth. And so it's a lot easier for us to latch on to that understanding. Um, and even with exponential growth, uh, it's it's interesting that uh, there are people who do understand exponential growth and they're comfortable talking about that. Um, when you start talking about epidemics and spreads of diseases, uh, the growth model, it's actually not strictly an exponential growth model that usually gets brought in. Uh, it would be something called logistic growth. Uh, where it looks like exponential growth at first, but eventually you can't keep growing exponentially forever. There's just not that many people. Um, and so eventually it actually starts leveling out once you've actually had it spread to assert, you know, most of the population, then the growth rate actually naturally starts to slow itself. Um, and that's a growth model that most people, unless you're in the middle of a, a math class that's related to that sort of thing. You're most people just aren't going to encounter that in their day-to-day -day lives. Sure. So a phrase you said there in passing as you're explaining logistical growth is uh, looks like, and I think um, maybe one way we try to wrap our heads around exponential or logistical growth is that we see it graphed. We we see um, visualizations on TV on uh, websites that we visit to try to explain what's happening. Try to um, help us. I guess I've thought a lot about just the notion of flattening the curve, right? Has entered the parlance. Um, and graphing is something all of us encounter at a certain point in our math education, but probably pretty far back in our math education. What what are mistakes people make in um, I don't know, making graphs, but certainly interpreting graphs, understanding graphs that uh, they should be aware of as they see these kinds of visualizations? Well, uh, one thing to kind of be on the lookout for is probably how the uh, vertical axis is labeled. Uh, look to see whether it actually starts at zero or whether they're kind of zoomed in on just the, the portion of the number line that they care about. And so there, that's uh, one easy way to make something look a, a bit more dramatic. Uh, but it's also a way to get you more detail is to not start at zero if most of the numbers are in a particular range way above zero. They'll just start the axis at the lowest number that they think is useful. And so, like I said, that kind of gets you zoomed in. It gets you a little bit more detail. Uh, but it can also make any changes look a lot more dramatic because you're you're dealing with a much smaller range. And so when you go across that entire range, it's spreading out and taking up the entire graph. Uh, another thing to look out for, especially when you've got exponential growth, is having a log scale. So instead of the vertical axis saying, you know, one, two, three, four, going up that way, uh, it'll be one, 10, 100, 1,000. And so each tick mark is actually an order of magnitude higher than the tick mark below it. And when you're dealing with exponential growth, because it the numbers get so big so fast, 
if you want to be able to see any detail uh, going back to the earlier parts of the graph, you need something like a log scale graph in order to not have the most recent data dwarf all of the older data. True. So if you were working with a linear scale and you tried to show exponential growth, it's only the last couple of data points that are going to be taking up all of your vertical space and everything else gets squished way down at the bottom. A log scale allows you to spread that out a little bit more and see more of that. But uh, unless you're in finance, it's really unlikely that a log scale graph is something that you run into often enough to be comfortable with kind of intuitively knowing what that's showing you. Sure. Another concept that I think we hear a lot and very few of us have any idea what it means is modeling. And this is something I know you do a lot uh, with students. It's something you do with a team of students at Bethel. Um, can you explain first just broadly, what is mathematical modeling? Sure. So math modeling is using math language and math concepts to try and describe how a particular system is working. Uh, so you can use math modeling to explain uh, how things fit together, how they're interacting with each other. And once you've got a good model for what's actually going on and a good description of that, then you can start using that mathematical model to start predicting what's going to be happening next. Uh, you can use it to experiment by, okay, so if we know all the different pieces that are impacting this, what would happen if we changed this one piece of it? Is that gonna change our outcome and what sorts of outcomes might we get? So math models are tricky to come up with, but once you have them, it's a lot cheaper, faster, and easier to start experimenting with some of these things than it is to just uh, try and work with actual real life experiments. And sometimes you just, you don't have time to wait the several years to see what's gonna happen. You need to be able to make an educated prediction on what's gonna be taking place in the near future. Sure. So what's an example of a math model that you do uh, with students? It doesn't have to be public health necessarily. What's another way in which you can use math to um, for this kind of predictive experimentation? Sure. Uh, well, so the math modeling team that I work with at Bethel, uh, there's a uh, problem, you know, interesting problems every year. Uh, one of the ones that uh, the team worked on a few years ago, actually, uh, was back when there was the Ebola outbreak. And so one of the math models, uh, they were asking the students to come up with a model of what if you had some vaccines, but you didn't have enough vaccines to vaccinate the entire population? Uh, what portion of the population? So where should you be targeting the limited number of vaccine doses that you have? Uh, there was also one where they, uh, it was right after the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and they were having trouble resupplying uh, the different hospitals. And so they were supposed to come up with a math model of how could you fit enough medical supplies and drones and battery packs into standard shipping containers so that you could land shipping containers on Puerto Rico and resupply as many hospitals as possible by drone because a lot of the roads had washed out. And so it was just trying to say, okay, uh, can you figure out how to pack these shipping containers? What's going to be necessary? How, what supplies do those hospitals need? How far away from each other are the hospitals? How far can a drone actually carry a package on a single charge? So all of those things that go into uh, producing a math model and then making a recommendation. Mm -hmm. So the goal for a lot of these math models is to then uh, recommend what policy a government or a company should be taking in order to solve a particular problem or maximize their use of some resource. 
So when you mentioned the example of an Ebola uh, scenario, that that seems to lead pretty quickly into um, how have we seen this with COVID? You know, I don't know how much you paid attention to the um, public health modeling that you've heard, but where what kind of models have you heard talked about? And uh, maybe the question a lot of us are wondering is like how effective or how predictive have they been so far? Right. So there's a bunch of different organizations that are all uh, very rapidly trying to develop models to project. Uh, how many people are going to get sick, uh, who are those people going to be, where are they going to be concentrated, uh, and then also kind of what sort of uh, treatment capacity do we have? Do we have enough ICU beds? Um, and if we had, so a lot of the models are trying to predict how many people are going to need hospitalization on any given day of the calendar year. And we know, you know, for instance, in Minnesota, we have a particular number of ICU beds available. And so part of that flattening the curve was trying to make sure that we weren't going to have more people needing those ICU beds than we have ICU beds. Uh, so with math models, um, the there's a lot of assumptions that go into building those models. So there are always going to be a simplification of the real scenario. Uh, so when you're developing a math model, you're looking for those variables, you're looking for those parameters of what are all the different things that might be impacting how this is going to play out. And then once you've come up with the list of these are all the things that, you know, so uh, whether or not you have a stay at home order, what percentage of the population is actually going to be following that? Are people going to be wearing masks? Uh, you know, are these people, do they have underlying health risks already? How old are these people? Uh, and even just at first, when, during the early days, we weren't really entirely sure just how contagious the virus was. Mm -hmm. And so they had to make certain assumptions of, well, we think this percentage of the people are going to actually comply with the stay at home. We think that it's, you know, this is just, this is the contagion level of the virus. We think that this is how long it's going to take for people to get better. And so all of those assumptions then play into an eventual conclusion of here's how we think things are going to play out. And um, with math modeling, there's a lot of uncertainty in that, especially when you're building some of these models kind of on the fly. And there is that need for validation. And so we, the state of Minnesota, if you follow uh, the U of M's been doing some good uh, modeling on this, but every two weeks or so, they make some pretty drastic modifications to their model. Mm -hmm. And that's as they're seeing what's happening in real life, as they're finding out whether the assumptions they made were correct or not correct, as they're getting more and more accurate data, they then go back and revise those models, trying to make them even more useful in the future. So it is generally, I don't know if this much this varies but like as we have got more data then you know more cases more sense of i don't know if we're getting a sense of um immunity of at least how contagious it is does that mean modeling is getting more and more accurate in its predictions as it goes like for example right now all of us in higher education are waiting to hear what's going to happen this fall and i assume modeling is informing some of that decision or it's informing like what public health authorities tell someone like the president of bethel um should we expect maybe that uh, the models are going to be more predictive of what the fall looks like because we've had now a couple of months worth of data? To feed yeah. Um, so, and again, this is, we're really only going to know some of this in hindsight, you know, five years from now when someone's able to do a really good retrospective. Mm -hmm. um, but the more data we can get, the more we can feed that back into the model, the more we can validate whether the model is doing a good job of predicting what's happening. Uh, things should be getting more and more accurate. 
Um, I think a lot of people are still just naturally very uncomfortable with uncertainty though. Uh, so all of these models, usually, you know, the headline that you'll see as well, the model predicts, you know, 2000 people are, are going to die, you know, th this month or whatever. But um, usually what's really being predicted is a fairly wide range. Mm. And we might latch on to, you know, the, the number that's right in the middle of that range. But the model is usually saying there's quite a bit of uncertainty to this, depending on whether the assumptions that were made about these different parameters were actually correct. So Nathan, we always like to end by uh, asking about what else you're interested in. We, we want to both uh, make clear that the liberal arts can help us to understand and cope with pandemics, but also they do other kinds of things. And this is not the only thing we're interested in. So what, what's something else you're doing right now, whether it's teaching, research, something at home, what, what else is energizing you these days? Well, I am itching to get my garden going. Uh, this is Minnesota. We're in zone four. So uh, I, I know that I'm not supposed to actually try and plant anything until after Memorial Day. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm actually really excited to get my garden going. I've uh, gotten into cooking and baking just like the rest of the world. <laughs> now that we're all stuck at home, we're all trying to become master bakers. Um, but yeah, I'm almost 100% caught up with the MCU now. I have two Marvel movies left, and then I'll have seen them all. So, Fantastic. Well, thanks for talking to us a little bit to help us understand some of the words I think we all hear. And as you can tell from the questions I'm asking, I dimly understand these as well. My, my two years of high school calculus are a long way in the rearview mirror at this point. So I certainly learned a lot. Hopefully our, our listeners did too. Right, so Thank you. So Nathan Gossett is chair of uh, Math and uh, Computer Science Department at Bethel University, who's our guest this week. We'll be back next week for our season or series finale. We'll be talking to Amanda Hamilton from Bethel's Art and Design Department. Until then, thanks for listening to Pandemics in the Liberal Arts. This is Chris Gerritz.